Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody. It's New Books Network Anthropology, and welcome to our latest podcast. I'm Yarun Lee, a PhD student in anthropology at Tulane University, and I'm your host to the channel today. Transnational migration has attracted more and more attention in today's world. Migrants move from one place to another place, from one country to another country, pursuing their dreams and hope, or for some reasons, they are actually compelled to do so. Anthropologists have long been actively engaged in building a transnational discipline and rethinking their data on the phenomena of transnational migration. The book we will discuss today is the latest effort in this field, focusing on Korean Chinese migrants who move between a corner of Northeast China and South Korea. Their migration history is intertwined with the changing context of contemporary Northeast Asia. Their special ethnic identity further complicated the whole picture. I'm very excited to have this interview with the author of this book, Junhee Kwan. So welcome to today's podcast, Professor Kwan. Hi, Yadon. It's a great pleasure to meet you and have a chance to discuss my book with you and New Books Network. Thank you very much. I think it's totally my pleasure. And this new book, Borderland Dreams, the Transnational Leaves of a Korean Chinese Workers is published by Duke University Press in November 2023. So it's a you know brand new book, basically. And Professor Kwan is Associate Professor of the Asian Studies Program at California, California State University, Sacramento. Her research and teaching focusing on transnational migration and development, anthropology of exchange, kinship, ethnicity, and relatedness. So... First of all, I think an anthropologist always has a very strong connection with her or his ethnography. So we always want our audience to know more more about the author. So Professor Kwan, could you please introduce yourself to our audience and especially what brought you to anthropology? Yeah, um, I actually studied biology when I was in college, but I was not really good at biology and I was not a good student at biology. But at the same time, I was interested in kind of social um, activities and social movement back then by doing some kind of feminist movement activities and also some kind of um, um, socially marginalized group I taught for years. So during that time, I developed my interest in um, social issues in terms of gender, class, ethnicity, and race during my college time. So based on my interest, I changed my direction from biology to sociology when I was in Korea. So I did some kind of very brief ethnography uh, by writing my master thesis, um, focusing on Koreans in Japan who has um, no citizenship per se, so that the stateless Koreans in Japan. So that was my beginning point. So I was interested in uh, transnational mobility and Korean diaspora issue, which has becoming an important issue back then in South Korea. So I wrote a master thesis in Korea, which which is about stateless Koreans in Japan. So then I developed that master thesis into my dissertation. So then I studied in anthropology in the United States, and my long journey started from there as an anthropologist. 
very interesting and very impressive to see how you actually moved from one discipline to another discipline, moved from one country to another country, from Korea, to, from South Korea to Japan and also to China. And finally, you got your PhD in the US. And finally, you got your 10-year track job in the US. And basically, I think your 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 academic journey is basically a history of mobility. It's just like your interlocutors. It's very interesting. Thank so you, you. Yeah. let us build the connection between you and your book now, I think. So what is the what is this book about? Where is Yen Bin and who are the Korean Chinese? Could you please give some information to our audience basically? Sure. Um this book is about political economy of a dream, I would say. Political economy dream by looking into Korean Chinese mobility driven by the new political economy emerging from East Asia. So then East Asia is going through rapid transformation through neoliberalism. So I caught the moment by moving between China and South Korea. And this book is about, of course, mobility and also drive for the mobility and also consequence of mobility too. Um, here, my focus is on like, you know, mobile bodies, transnational money, mobile money, and mobile time, transnational temporality. So this is kind of my analytical unit. And Yenbian is the Korean Chinese autonomous prefecture bordering North Korea and Russia. So then Korean Chinese Autonomous Prefecture was designated by the Communist Chinese Party in 1952 as a result of Korean Chinese um, active, participate, active participation in the socialist movement back then. So then um, Korean Chinese were uh, crossing the river, which is a border, Tuman River, and they reclaim the barren land of Manchuria and then they participate in the socialist revolution and they were recognized as one of ethnic minorities in China. So the Yen Bien, Korean Chinese, these two locations and the people, they are closely tied together, creating some unique ethnic borderland. Very interesting. So basically Yen Bien is a very typical borderland, as you mentioned, is just near the border between China and North Korea, and also it's very cl close to Russia. And also, as the book title shows, this is an ethnography about borderland and border crossing. And I'm very interested in your methodology because doing an ethnography of borderland requires you to cross borders, just like what your interlocutors did. So in this book, I can see you move between South Korea and Yanbian, China. So what is the biggest challenge brought by this mobile multi-sided ethnographic strategy? And also, I hope to ask a very practical question. How do you balance between mobility and fixation in your fieldwork and writing? Yeah, that is a great question. Uh, this is a multi-sided field research, ethnography, and you know, transnational ethnography, borderland ethnography, we can name it in different ways too. Um, let me introduce how I started this research. Um, when I started when I started this research in 2004, majority of Korean Chinese were undocumented in South Korea. So they were not really moving. So then their mindset was like, once I go to Korea, I'm going to work until I am caught. 
So the timeline is not really based on visa regulation or their own time limit. Rather, external forces, something like a deportation or you know, body sickness, so that was their you know, temporal deadline. Um, so 2005 is a really important critical turning point for Korean-Chinese migration because the South Korean government granted an amnesty to Korean Chinese, undocumented Korean Chinese. After then, Korean Chinese could move back and forth as a free migrants. So I, after then, I follow their migration. Since they became free, they can move back and forth. I follow them. And one of the challenges that I have faced during um, the research is that things are changing so quickly. And so quickly that it's very hard for me to catch up the changes, the legal changes, cultural changes, emotional changes that Korean Chinese have shown. But at the same time, um, I was able to follow up the changes by following them. So that is one thing. So that I am following the people over the course of time. Another um, challenge is that um, because it's a long span ethnography, so there's some kind of generational challenges too and generation and the changes too. So that I could keep up, I have to keep in touch with them, first of all. So then sometimes when I call them, they're in Yanbian, sometimes they're in, in Korea. So then, you know, the staying in touch with them in a steady phase is really important. And also, um, this is this this is also a journey with them. It's, this is not just about following their trajectory, but also I have to live live with them uh, through their transnational migration. So then, on the one hand, I have to follow them. On the other hand, I have to keep in touch with them. So I have to archive those migration and mobilities over the course of time. So that was like a big, um, big task at the same time, a real real like, pleasure to do so with them. Very interesting and also indeed very challenging because you have to always keep this balance between, you know, catching up with your interlocutors, but also you have to find some fixation, find some, you know, point. And you know, it's always about balancing, especially for multi-sided ethnographers. So, yeah, yeah. yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, I like to add that you talked about like mobility and fixation, like writing process. So yeah, of course, anthropologists, we collect data from the field and we write in a different place. I did the same thing. But at the same time, when I was writing my ethnography, which is a dissertation in my book, writing is also part of field research. So we could do a lot of things in front of a computer. And also we could chat, we could write email. And um, so therefore, in the writing itself is not a fixation, but also it is a part of a mobility too. And also we have to follow up, we have to keep in touch, we have to catch up. So in that sense of writing itself, is not real in the fixation. That is like whole upgrading updating process, especially when we are writing long span um, ethnography, including a lot of changes. Thank you. I think it was very helpful information for, you know, the anthropologists in training to know more about how to do their research, how to 
you know, keep this balance, not only between fixation and mobility, but also between doing field work and writing. It's very insightful. So next, I want to tend to positionality. So Professor Kwan, you are from South Korea and you study transnational Korean Chinese people. In your research, I think you have multiple identities to your interlocutors. You are, first of all, a South Korean citizen. You are a female and a researcher. So what is the impact of this positionality on your fieldwork and your interactions with your interlocutors? That's another great question, too. Um, as a South Korean who studies in the United States, I was very welcomed by Yanbian people and Korean Chinese for sure. At the same time, I was limited and then they have kind of guarded attitude to, toward me. So especially like borderland and borderland people. So there's just some kind of like censorship and political sensitivity. A lot of Korean Chinese try to be very cautious about who they meet, what they say, and how they're interacting with the strangers. I was one of the strangers. So it took me a long time to get accommodated, invited to their everyday life. Um, there's always a limit and there's always a guarded attitude. I think that kind of limit and guarded attitude is also part of ethnographic data or information too. I've included that experiences a lot in my um, article and book too. Um, and also woman part is big thing too. So there's just some kind of like it's South Korean woman studying in the United States um, and, and, and also an ethnographer. So then like a female part, again, it's, I, I was welcome. It's an easy access as a graduate student. I had an easier access to uh, the family and local people. At the same time, um, I had to be protect myself too to go far away from the city to go to countryside. So then I had a lot of collaboration with the local people too. So then this kind of like, you know, who I am and what I do is quite limited. At the same time, it really expanded what I can do in Yanbian and Borderland. Yeah, exactly. I can see it from your book that you are actually, you actually have a very, complicated identity as both an insider and an outsider. You are an insider because you have, you can, you, you master this, the this same language with your interlocutors, but right. at the same time, I think you are still an outsider and you mentioned you have so many limitations about your research during this, you know, of field work. So it's very insightful and continue this discussion I want to talk about one specific identity identity of yours about gender. So when reading this book, I can see you give particular attention to female migrants. So I want to know why women? Is there any you know, special considerations of this choice? Will you consider your book as providing a more feminist or female-centric perspective? Yeah, thank you for the question. I didn't mean to be picking women to be a feminist scholar or feminist ethnographer. Um, this is more about important phenomena that shows transnational migration setting. There's a very feminized migration amongst Korean Chinese. There is that. So then Korean Chinese women, they are very powerful to transform 
the household dynamics in Yanbian, and also they made a great contribution to South Korean labor market, especially care service industry. So a lot of Korean Chinese women, especially nowadays, they are participating in the care service. Without having Korean Chinese women, the Korean South Korean care service could not be run. So then they were very powerful group that transformed Yanbian as well as South Korea. But actually, uh, only chapter three, I collected, you know, I, I really focused on Korean Chinese women's voice, but at the same time, other chapters, I try to show the dynamics between you know, men and women. So gender dynamics is one of the big key thing in my book. Um, I didn't mean to be a feminist by writing a woman, but at the same time, I tried to be a feminist by writing the transformative, powerful power that Korean Chinese women have shown to us. Very fascinating, very fascinating. Uh, by the way, I read your book chapter in, in the meantime, and I witness you actually document two male migrant stories. So yeah, I think, yeah, you actually have very extensive um, ethnographic material, both from men and women. So yeah, basically it's a very fascinating book. And let's start from the chapter one. It's about history. So for Korean Chinese migrants, their stories are particularly interesting because their migration history is intertwined with China's and also South Korea's recent history and the transnational relationship between the two countries, actually. So what is the Korean wing? And what particular hysterical moment did it emerge? Yeah, thank you for asking that question that allows me to historicize my book in a way. Win is a really important concept in making and understanding Korean Chinese modern history through mobility. So the win in Korean is Param, which expresses some kind of like a collective fashion and a fashion people follow together. So once you're in the middle of the strong wind, you just have to follow the flow. So that is a kind of like a metaphor that Korean Chinese were using when they're using the wind, when they were period, when they're making some kind of periodization in their modern history. So I introduced several winds um, in a form of periodization of mobility. The first wind, Blown to Yanbian is a market wind. Market wind is in the 1980s, um, which is about the rise of market. So then like a mar the idea of a market is based on uh, creating some kind of value and currency and profits. The profits were not really encouraged, even forbidden under you know, communist party in the communist system. So here that people try to sell and gain some kind of profit. So then that really attracted a lot of people. They had some kind of like a secretive market activities in Yanbian, not only Yanbian, but also across China. Yanbian is one part of that. So here that the profiteering activities becoming popular over time. So a lot of Korean Chinese, especially who are working for the government, they realize that there's a big income gap between market activities by selling things and then the government office worker. So a lot of them so-called punch the ocean, Shahai. So then they were they they were doing some kind of new business 
um, through market wind. So that is like a through the market wind period, which is in 1980, early 1980s and mid 1980s in Yenbian's and multiple markets were built by the government and people participating in this activity. So then this is a very important activity in that Korean Chinese who had lived in the autonomous prefecture, who did not have a lot of interactions with Chinese, in Chinese, with the Chinese word. So this is kind of first encounter that they can meet real China in their world. So then, you know, they realize that how much they are ethnic minorities in China. So prior to that moment, they didn't have any um, encounter with the exterior world, which is YDA. So then now they realize that where they live, who they are, how they should interact with the real Chinese world. So then the second win is a North Korean win. A lot of Korean Chinese living in Yenbian, they migrated from Hamgyeongbukdo, which is a border area in North Korea and contemporary North Korea. So then a lot of them are descendants who migrated from Hamgyeongbukdo to Yenbian. So then they try to recuperate the kinship ties, which is broken, which is forgotten, which is forbidden during the Cultural Revolution. And they try to recuperate by having some kind of business. The third win is a Soviet win, which is very short, but very strong. And then China and Russia, they normalized the diplomatic relationship in 1991. And Chinese, Korean Chinese, as a Chinese, they crossed the border to Russia. They are having business. It's more like a larger scale, long-term business with the Russian people. But 1992, South Korea and China had normalized diplomatic relationship. So then Korean wind was blown to Yenbian. So then that has lasted for the last 30 years. In contrast, the previous wind, which is built on mobility, Korean wind is still blown, still influential, still powerful in Yenbian. So then wind is an important concept that really shows a dream and future that Korean Chinese could have through mobility. Very interesting and very impressive. And I also think wind is a very accurate word to capture this flow of people in history and also in the contemporary world. And what impresses me about your description is, is you actually shows us that it is exactly it is precisely in mobility, in movement, people actually shape and reshape their identity and their imagination of outside work. It's very interesting. So let's talk about identity, I think. So in this book, you present the process of how Korean Chinese have been shaped as an ethnic group defined by their border crossing action, actually. So here, I think at least three dimensions are included. The first one is ethnicity. The second one is mobility. And the third one is about class because they are labor, they are workers from you know, other people's point of view. And how can we understand this complex identity formation process? Can you elaborate this through some concrete examples to our audience? Sure. Uh, my book is also shows the process of making Korean Chinese um, transnational ethnic migrant class. That's my term in my book. 
So here, ethnicity is a really key concept. Korean Chinese are migrating from China to South Korea because they are Korean ethnic, they have a Korean ethnicity, which is true. But I try to expand the concept. I try not to essentialize the Koreanness. How this Koreanness is called and used by Korean labor market and Korean society and capital. So then this ethnicity is not just given to us. It's really called and used and reinterpreted by multiple actors and agents. So here this is ethnicity. So then Korean Chinese, they were undocumented in the first place, as I mentioned earlier. Here law is coming to the scene to call them they are migrant workers, not official migrant workers. So here that they could participate in some designated field, such as construction, care service, restaurant workers, and so forth. So then here, there's an ethnicity. They are Korean. They're using Koreanness. At the same time, there's some kind of differentiation amongst the Koreanness. So then, you know, the Korean, the South Korean government called them and as a migrant workers, and also here that the labor market as a Korean Chinese as workers. So we can see that, you know, the formation of Korean Chinese as a migrant class is not just about law or ethnicity or capital, but these three things are coming together, played in creating Korean Chinese as certain transnational subjects. Truly amazing. I think it's it, it perfectly shows how identity has already already become a very complex and very dynamic issue in today's world. We can actually cannot separate these three elements apart, actually. So let's talk about temporality. Basically, different places and different people are defined and marked by different sense of time. And also talking about identity. Identity is also defined by different time because sometimes in anthropology we talk about the other and the other is in different temporal dimension from us so this is a very interesting distinction we always made in our daily life so migrants and immigrants are people who move between different places move from one country to another country from one culture to another culture so they are also the group of people who experiences different senses of time. You mentioned that people in Yanbian have a rhythm of time very different from South Korea. So what is this difference and what results in this difference? Yeah, thank you for the question. I also uh, writing about this temporality question, chapter three and four through waiting and rhythm. Uh, let me introduce the moment that I have to follow their different rhythms of migration. So in 2005 and 6 and 7 and 9, 8 nights, I kept following them. So here, very specific kind of rhythm emerged from visa regulation. So in order for Korean Chinese to get amnesty in 2005, Korean Chinese had to leave Korea for one year and stay in China. And then they're coming back to South Korea to use a five-year visa. So here this five-year visa is a cut three and two. So after three years of working in South Korea, Korean Chinese had to leave one more time 
and coming back to South Korea so they can use the rest of two years of visa. So you can see that there's some kind of like, you know, um, interruption, intended interruption, which is opposed by the South Korean government. So I see that the emergence of the rhythm, one, three, two. So I caught the moment. Actually, nowadays, the visa regulation has changed a little bit. But at this time, I caught the moment of one, three, two rhythm. So here, one year, they were resting after long undocumented um, worker life, 10 years and 15 years without coming back to their hometown. So here, one year, they were resting, but at the same time, they're not really working without making any money. So then there's some kind of like, you know, uh, wasting money, spending money, which causes anxiety for Korean Chinese too. So they're coming back to South Korea for three years. So then um, they have worked, work, work. It's a work life without having any rest. But at the same time, so a lot of Korean Chinese are kind of satisfied with this work, work life, which is very exhaustive. And also they're exploited. Sometimes they're discriminated. But where they work, they feel comfortable. So that's what they're saying. And also they're coming back to their hometown a little bit. So that when they go back again, they are not really doing anything but waiting to go back to South Korea. So here that some kind of yenbian time, Korean time. Yenbian time is not really working, but spending. Korean time is working, but making. And Korean time is like a productive time from Korean um, Chinese point of view. And yenbian time is not really productive time. So there's some kind of like a split of a space based on time practices. Yanbian time and Korean time. So then this kind of time practice also creates new material material condition. So then they're spending money, they you know, and they are having parties. They spend, spend, so they they they're waiting to go back. In South Korea, so they are waiting to go back home. So they're you know waiting in Yanbian, waiting in South Korea. A lot of waitings are really um kind of in conflict. So they're always waiting for something like everybody. So um, so that is a kind of like you know, a transnational subject. They create transnational temporal practices at the same time, transnational material reality. So that's my, my, my discovery um, of time practices. And also in terms of time practice, uh, the other has a different time or backward, um, Rather, I try to see the simultaneity of temporality in transnational migration. So they are not really doing like a two different time, the backward time, advanced time. They're living in diff different time zones at the same time. Thank you. So basically, the different time zones actually coexist in the experience of migration. That's right. Okay, very interesting. Mm -hmm. So as we have already talked about the topic about waiting, I think we can push this discussion further. So for Korean Chinese migrants, and actually I believe for all the migrants around the globe, waiting is a common experience. And you have already had, you know, mentioned about how policy changes actually create this temporal difference between Yanbin and South Korea. And could you please elaborate on this further to tell our audience about 
what actually caused waiting among Korean Chinese migrants and their families in Yanbian, and what does waiting mean to them, actually? Is waiting an absolutely, a totally passive experience, or actually something is happening in the practice of waiting? Thank you so much. That's a great question. That is one of my core um, contribution to the migration studies you know, through the lens of waiting. Uh, waiting is a condition by many different things. It could be the law, legal regulation, visa regulation. Waiting could be conditioned by the body illness. Waiting could be conditioned by the amount of money they have made. Waiting is a condition by where they are too. Uh, here, you know, wait the first waiting, long waiting, is mainly conditioned by the legal situation. So as I mentioned earlier, Korean Chinese, even though there are majority of migrants in South Korea, until 2005, there's no proper law that accommodated Korean Chinese as migrant workers. So therefore, a lot of illegal migration causes, you know, it produces undocumented migrants. So those who are working as undocumented migrants, they're just waiting until they are caught. They're waiting until they make enough money. So then how much, how much money is enough? We do not know. So there's a very ambiguous timeline that they have. But in 2005, as I mentioned earlier, critical turning point. So now they're moving back and forth. So here waiting 10 years waiting, 15 years of waiting until the amnesty happened. So then once they met their family members in 10 years, and they have become different human beings. A lot of fights, a lot of conflicts, but at the same time, they try to recreate um, family dynamics. Sometimes a lot of them were you know, broken up too. Um, so here, waiting is not just about like passive condition. Rather, while, while they are waiting for money and for the loved ones to return, they have to do something. Something like, you know, they have to take care of their children. So that if this is a, a legal situation, related to legal, legal situation. They cannot really bring their kid to Korea. So therefore, one parent should take care of their child back in China. So nowadays, things are different. They can bring their children to South Korea. But back then, in 10 something years ago, they could not do it. So here that while they are waiting, they are taking care of their children. They are taking care of the remittances sent from Korea. So this is actually a very productive labor that somebody should do. So then my point is that without having the waiting people, the money is not coming back to China and then without having that money coming from Korea, there's no waiting people either. So then these are waiting people and then in the remittances, they're like a money and love. They're really interconnected together. It really perpetuates the circuit of migration. So in that sense, waiting is a very important dimension that perpetuates the mobility of people mobility of money. That's why it's a really important ontological material condition, I argue, in my chapter you know, three and four. And also waiting properly part. So then like in 
what is a good waiting, right? So then without having an affair with other people, you know, having child, you know, sending to um, Beijing University, what is a proper waiting? Everybody has a different definition, perhaps. But after 10 years and 20 years, Korean Chinese who worked in South Korea, they made a lot of material achievements. They buy, they, they have bought in a, an apartment or two and car. And some children were um, educated in Japan or in the United States or Beijing or Shanghai. So then this waiting could be, could enable another migration. So they're trying to waiting properly is some kind of like, you know, a lot of management of money and relationship and also um, some kind of emotional loneliness and so forth. So then um, I wrote some um, stories about, you know, some you know, waiting husband and waiting wife in my chapter four. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Very impressive stories, very impressive ethnographic vignette in chapter uh, chapter four. And I also see from your other book chapter, uh, in, in the meantime, you actually wrote about how complex waiting is, because it, first of all, could be an experience of powerlessness, be stuck be trapped in a timeless in a timeless present but it also can be socially productive like you mentioned in you know our discussion so yeah i think definitely it is the contribution to con contemporary waiting studies to complicate the whole picture of the practice of waiting and in this book i think another very important topic is about hope and dream so in this book, I can see you write a lot about hardship, discrimination, and also people's powerlessness. Basically, I think it's the dark side of migration. But as you mentioned in this book title, you pay equal attention to hope and dreams. So we talked about the Korean wind before. So today, the Korean wind may have already stopped or actually have already be slowed, but people's dream and hope continue in different forms. All in different forms, but they are still connected to the Korean dream, to the Korean wind. So first, I want to ask, how does this place of hope increasingly shift from South Korea to their hometown? And how does this shift reflect the broader economic and political transformations in China and in broader East, A East Asia? Yeah, thanks so much for the question. Um, when I was doing my field research um, in 2004, 5, and 6, what I heard oftentimes was um, China will exceed South Korea in 10 years. I heard over and over. When I went to Yenbian, I heard over and over, you know, taxi driver and other people. And um, South Korea, South Koreans will come to China as dagong, you know, workers. So then there's just some kind of strong hope and expectation, anticipation amongst the Chinese, including Korean Chinese, China will exceed South Korea. That has happened during my field research. So then um, China, the rise of China is really rapid and powerful. A lot of Korean Chinese started regretting what they have done, which is 
coming to South Korea. So there are a lot of regrets, something like if I had to come back to China a few years earlier, I could have made a lot more money. So I've heard that kind of regrets, disappointments over and over. But at the same time, a lot of them were going back to South Korea, you know, the circuit of migration, by pursuing Korean dream too. So Korean dream seems to be really dwindled at the same time. It's really persistent too. So here I like to say that Korean dream is not just about like how much money they are making. So there's a kind of different forms of dream that they're pursuing. So in chapter six, so one of the vignettes shows um, saying that Whenever I landed on Incheon Airport, I'm so excited. So then the moment that I landed, so then he started feeling the life and everyday life and the happiness that he had had in South Korea. So it's not just about how much money they are making, but also the lifestyle they have built in South Korea. And also the um, the community they have experienced in South Korea. And most of all, the quality of life. So here in chapter six, I wanted to introduce the competitive understanding of quality of life. So they're like a, there are two different interpretations. Those who have not gone to South Korea, they are better off. So better off, we have to reinterpret better off in terms of finance and economic status, better off in terms of like, you know, social status too. So then Korea and China, those who, been, who has gone to Korea, so they, they tend to say, I learned something really important I could not learn without going to South Korea. So then they learn something from South Korea. At the same time, Korean Chinese who stayed in South Korea, so there's some kind of like a very derogatory statement, something like Korean Chinese who have gone to South Korea, they learn nothing but Korean accent. So here that, you know, there's some kind of like a mutual uh, understanding of social you know, the quality of life. So then Korean style of life is better or Chinese style is better. This is not just about like, you know, the, you know, the, the money, how much money they have made. So there's some kind of like a competition in terms of quality of life. So in that sense, the Korean dream is not really dwindled or disappeared. Rather, the dreams are in competition and in conflict at the moment. Another big theme is that um, I tr I tend to explain uh, the win and dream kind of nationalized way. So there's just some kind of like a Russian dream, Russian wind, Korean wind, and China wind. But the dreams are diversified in many different ways. If we go to a place like a Flushing in New York City, if we go to LA, so we can see a lot of Korean Chinese and also like, you know, Tokyo and Osaka, a lot of Korean Chinese too. So therefore, the dreams are not really like fixated by nation or state, but also um, in terms of like the, the career they could have, in terms of like the business that they could have, you know, the dreams are really diversified. So therefore, um, Korean dream is dwindled. China dream is rising. Things are not that simplistic. 
as I wrote in my books. It's more complicated because it's uh, and there after I wrote and after I did my research, you know, things are really diversified, more complicated. I have to say that Korean wind is not just a dwindled, it really appear in a different forms. Super interesting. And th- basically, I think it's about how dream could be changing with context with you know, the, the wider, the broader sociocultural transformations. But I think even the peak time of Korean wind ha- has already passed. But South Korea has always had a very important position in Yanbian people's dream and hope. How can we explain this continuous attraction of South Korea to Yanbian people? Thank you. Thank you. So, so then there, I can expand there uh, a little bit more. So it's not just about labor migration is a big thing. And Korean wind is a composer of labor migration. And yet labor migration turned into business. A lot of Korean Chinese who have not gone to South Korea, they're doing business that connects between China and South Korea. It's not just about labor migration. A lot of Korean Chinese, they are doing some kind of like an inner translator, interpreter, and like, you know, business guide and so forth. So then they're always a kind of like a connecting between Korean capital and Chinese capital too. Not between these two countries, but in the third place, like in New York or LA. So in that sense, Korea is always an important, uh, important site that Korean Chinese are coming back to at the same time. As a business people, they are connected to Chinese capital too. So then, like, you know, Korean Chinese are not just a Korean Chinese. They are by using these capital, they can go beyond these two countries too. So in that sense, the Korean win is really important. Korea is a really important site. But that is also a stepping stone for Korean Chinese to go beyond the national boundaries too. Okay, okay. No, I can understand. It is indeed very complex. And talking about this complexity, now I want to return to a concept actually appear in the earlier part of your book. It's called unhomeliness. So I put this question in the later part of our interview because I think this concept is not only useful in Korean Chinese migration studies, but also has analytical efficiency, uh, analytical usefulness in other contexts. So basically in South Korea, Korean Chinese migrants are seen as a group of people like Korean, but not that like. And in Yanbian China, the newly rising narrative, which prioritize non-mobility than mobility. This narrative actually strengthens the marginalization of migrants and return needs. So how can you understand this unhomeliness of Korean Chinese migrants? In your opinion, do you think it is a problem to be resolved or it is an inevitable byproduct of modernity and today's global flows? Yeah, that is a great question too. Um, I I also thought you know the unhomeliness is in a position in the later part of interview, so that's a really smart way to put. Um, home is a very important concept in migration studies. Home is a place where people want to leave, but at the same time, people want to return to. So then, people really want to return to the home they left. 10, 20 something years ago. So they try home itself is on the one hand, they want to leave. And also they want to leave or they want to return. So that hesitance, that contradictory nature, uh, I wrote in my chapter one and chapter six, chapter five. 
Um, on homeliness, so when I was writing in chapter one, is more about ethnic minority identity. So then Korean Yanbian is not quite China from for Korean Chinese. So then Yanbian is not China, but Yanbian. Korean Chinese are not Chinese, but Chaoshenju. Korean Chinese. So they are not quite Chinese. They are not quite China. They live in the third place within the territory of China as a Chinese but ethnic minority. They have created their home and homeland in a way by reclaiming the barren land by crossing the border a century ago. So but at the same time, you know, the Tuman River that we are seeing, so that after you cross the river, that so that is the home your ancestors came from. So in that sense, you know, it's the homeliness is homeliness itself is a kind of like in you know, a feel at home. Korean Chinese feel at home at the same time they want to leave. So I wanted to play this contradictory feeling. They want to leave and also they want to leave. And also in you know, a Yanbian as an ethnic hub. At the same time, ethnic enclave. So then it's a very exclusive place. At the same time, it really includes a lot of Korean Chinese from all of the place. So then this thing that Yanbian as a place borderland, it's a very exclusive at the same time, inclusive, marginalized at the same time, it's well connected to global economy and the world too. So then, and that's why in the homeliness part, do they really want to go back? Or do they really want to leave? But that, you know, these two contradictory feelings are ongoing thing. Another thing, big thing is that homeliness. A lot of Korean Chinese, they feel home when they work. So work and home, without having work, they are not really comfortable, especially in this kind of like a capitalized society. When they have some kind of productive life, they feel at home. So um, your question is like, you know, um, the unhomeliness is a problem to be solved or it's inevitable by product of majority today's global flaw. Yes. And I think that this is a question to kind of everybody who is mobile. Where is your home? Sometimes it's really hard to answer. So my home is where my, my parents are or where I am working. So then that is really the, the question is making a lot of people hard to answer. So there are four unhomeliness. It's a very vague at the same time and very um, common phenomenon and feelings that a lot of people come to have nowadays. Thank you. Yeah, I totally agree. It's talking about identity, talking about people's belongingness and also talking about people's homeliness. There is no clear cut and black and white answers, basically. It's a very complex issue. And I think your book, your ethnographic details perfectly illustrates this point. So I just want to pose a post-field question. So what is the situation of Korean Chinese migrants now? Because we can see that the China, the China dream doesn't develop smoothly as many of your interlocutors hoped or believed. So are they still believing in this promising future brought by the China's global rise or if not do they more and more rejoin the migration circle between Yanbin and Seoul or are they chasing the other dreams through their border crossing practices for example to the Europe or to the US or to other places 
Yeah, so that's another phenomenon. So then, you know, the migration between Yanbian and South Korea is a major one, but it's, again, it's diversified and it's expanded. And Korean Chinese are not just going to South Korea. So their parents' generation, that is a very common um, trajectory. But nowadays, a based on that migration, Korean Chinese second generation and third generation of migrants, so they could go another place where they want to. So they could gain um, the currency to be mobile to another place, including South Korea. Um, Korean dream, again, Korean dreams is still ongoing thing. And also the foundation of Korean Chinese mobility. At the same time, South Korea is not the only place where Korean Chinese want to come. As we are approaching the end of today's podcast, the final question is about what are you working on now and what is next? Because I know you are very busy doing your research in South Korea and I'm very curious about what are you doing now and are you still connecting with your Korean Chinese uh, interlocutors? And you know, basically, please share with us. Yes, I'm still connected to my Korean Chinese friend. Um, staying in touch is really important. They're my friends too. So then... I have stayed in touch with them. My next book project is about tangerine trees. So that I'm studying about social history of tangerine trees. I'm currently conducting my field research in Jeju, Korea. Um, so tangerine trees are one of the representative image of Jeju. And tangerines are one of the cash crop that enable the rapid economic growth of Jeju. Actually, that is quite recent phenomena. And tangerine trees were sent by Koreans in Japan who migrated from Japan from Jeju to Japan, and they could not come back to Jeju because of their political issue and some kind of legal issue. So instead of their return, Koreans in Japan, especially Jeju Koreans in Japan, they sent tangerine trees as a gift to Jeju Island. So then that gift became an important cash crop that enabled the, in the, 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 in, enable them the market economy. And, and the, these, these trees enable Jeju people to send their kids to university in Seoul too. So therefore, tangerine trees are called university trees too. So I am studying about the social history of a tangerine trees. So actually tangerine trees are important um, even prior to 1960s when Park Jong-hee uh, Park Jong-hee regime um, pushed the planned economy. During the colonial era, Japanese already came to Jeju and they investigated the soil and water condition to check in you know, a tangerine trees are suitable to Jeju Island. So then there's some kind of like an imperial colonial science and knowledge production prove that Jeju is a good place. But there's just some kind of political disjuncture. Um, tangerine trees could not become a product and cash crop for Jeju people. So then prior to that, in Jeju, there's like a native tangerine trees. So then the tangerine trees are so rare in Korea during the Joseon dynasty. So then tangerine trees were tributed to the king. So it's a very special gift to the king. So then again, tangerine trees are gift and commodity 
And at the same time, state project. I tried to figure out this triangular relationship, tangerine trees, and as a gift, commodity, and state product. But nowadays, uh, tangerine trees, and the, 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 tra the tree itself were traveling. And um, then nowadays, just overproduction of tangerines. So then now tangerines are kind of like a risky fruits. The tangerine trees are risky trees um, in relation to climate crisis and labor shortage too. So my second project in relation to the you know first book, I'm studying about the relationship between migration of things and migration of people. This sounds like a super interesting and, and, I mean, very ambitious project about interwoven, the intertwining history between three East Asian countries, between China, Korea, and Japan is super interesting. And I also can see the connections between Borderland Dreams and your current projects. They are all, they are both about migration and mobility and the interconnection of social world, basically. It's fascinating. I'm always enthusiastic to chat with you about them. And when you have your new book, please tell me. So <laughs> Professor, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. fascinating. So Professor Kwan, thank you so much for coming to today's podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, in today's podcast, we discussed the new book by Jun He Kwan, Borderland Dreams, The Transnational Leaves of a Korean Chinese Workers published by Duke University Press last month. If you're interested in transnational migration, labor, time and hope, the practice of waiting, and the recent history of Northeast Asia, please read this book and you will never regret your decision. Thank you for listening to New Books Network and Anthropology, and we will see you next time.